This is Wide Margins episode 20, Happy and Lost, or Micah's Shrine. I wasn't sure what to call this one. I thought that maybe Micah's Shrine would be a little too... Uh, I didn't think it would draw much attention if you were scrolling through the titles. And then Happy and Lost seemed a little too on the nose. You decide. You call this episode whatever you want it to be. I'm going to put Happy and Lost on the title, but that doesn't mean that's the title to you. You just pick whichever one you want, and I'm good with this. Hey, we are at the penultimate episode of the Book of Judges, and I've enjoyed this series on Judges, but I am ready for it to come to an end, because, man, has it been depressing. I mean, let's just be honest. It's been a little dark. That's interesting, but it's not always uplifting. And I've learned a lot. I hope that you have. We are at a breaking point here in the book because we have finished talking about individual judges. Samson was the last one named, making him the 12th judge, rounding out an even number 12. We have had seven cycles, but the book's not over yet. We are at chapter 17, And what you have through chapters 17 through 21 is an epilogue. Uh, Just some stories tacked on to the end that push the theme, that kind of illustrate this idea that there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, that is the first time in chapter 17, this is the first time we see that theme expressed in chapter 17, verse 6, and you'll see it again in the very last verse of the book. So in this episode, we're going to look at the first story in the epilogue. Next episode, we're going to look at the last one, and that rounds out the book of Judges. Let me know what you think about this series, and if you'd like to see other series on books of the Bible, if you'd like to see them as thorough as this one, or if you prefer surveys. Um, I'm probably not going to do that much on this episode. I enjoy taking my time. Um, But I'd like to know what you think. And also, if you'd like to request a series on a particular book, I'd like to hear about that too. And there are a number of ways you can get that out to me. Um, I like to get tweets. Uh, You can uh, tweet me. You can make comments on the website, which is widemarginspodcast.com, but you probably already know that. Uh, leaving reviews on iTunes not only gives me some feedback, but it also helps this podcast get out to other listeners. Uh, leave a rating while you're at it. So there are all kinds of different ways. A lot of you are personal friends, so just pull me aside and let me know. That's okay, too. I love talking about this. This is a fun hobby, and I enjoy doing it, and I appreciate you listening to it. Let's get into the story about Micah and his shrine. It starts off with a little dust-up between Micah and his mom. Sometimes that happens. You know, moms can be very proud of their kids, but they can be imperfect. That's what happens here in Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse... And also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. There's a lot going on here. 
I don't know if this is significant, but did you notice how much silver he stole? The same amount that Delilah took from the Philistines to betray Samson, 1,100 pieces of silver or shekels of silver. And in the hearing of her son, when the mother realized that her money was stolen, she laid a curse upon the one who stole it, and the son thought, uh-oh, I better confess. And when he did, she immediately turned around, as mothers often do, and sought to reverse the curse with, Blessed be my son. Blessed be my son by the Lord. And she had this proposal. She restored, he restored the silver to his mom. She dedicated it to the Lord for a carved image and a metal image. Now the wording in verse 3, and it's repeated throughout, of this image as a carved image and a metal image seems a little redundant until you realize the similarity to Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 15. The writer must have been looking at that scripture whenever he was writing this down because in that you have I believe the beginning of a series of curses in the book of Deuteronomy for certain sins and you have this same phrase used cursed is he who makes a depending on your translation a carved image or a metal image it's used there to cue the reader in in a very subtle way all of the judgments here are reserved or subtle that what Micah and his mother are conspiring to do is very wrong so she gives him the money to do this and they're playing hot potato with this money like nobody wants it it's been under a curse he gives it back to her she gives it back to him he gives it back to her she gives it to the silversmith and she only gives 200 to him and you wonder where the rest of the money went probably back into her pocket but they start making this shrine and they put it together against the will of God of course you know how adamant the Word of God is against idolatry verse 5 says the man the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod we studied what that was when we talked about Gideon and how that was sinful in Gideon's time this ephod was maybe an apron for a priest part of the priestly attire but it was also a way to inquire of the Lord. There was a consecrated ephod that stayed with the tabernacle and the high priest, but this was an unauthorized ephod. So he made that, he made household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. This man was a man of Ephraim, so his son could not have qualified, according to the law, for a priest. And verse 6 makes sure that we know that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eye. Now, after we have been introduced to Micah's family, we're introduced to another person in verse 7. And this is a Levite. We later know, learn at the end of the chapter that his name is Jonathan and that he is a direct descendant of Moses, which makes him, of course, a Levite and of the priestly family. Verse 7 tells us this was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah who was a Levite and he sojourned there. If you know the book of Joshua well or Old Testament history you know that the Levites did not have a land inheritance so they by design were scattered all through Israel so that they could serve priestly services wherever they were. 
This particular Levite, he was located in Judah, which would be uh, the home of the temple later on, but not right now. And uh, he resided there. Although he was a Levite, he was in uh, the area where inhabited by the tribe of Judah. But he decided to take a journey from Bethlehem in Judah and find a new place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, and he met this man Micah and discovered his shrine. Micah was ecstatic. Verse 10 says he invites the young man in. He says, uh, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. He didn't mean a father in the sense of a man with a son, because later on Micah will say, you'll be a son to me. But he meant father in the religious sense. You'll be, you know, a, you'll be in a position of religious authority here. You'll be my priest, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year. We know that he had a lot more. A suit of clothes, and you're living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So they de developed, at least in Micah's mind, a close relationship. And you see Micah's joy in verse 13. He says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. Really, Micah? You think so? He's got a Levitical priest now, and he thinks that checks enough boxes to make this shrine with an idol breaking the first two commandments uh, in an unauthorized place away from the tabernacle. He thinks it's going to make it okay with the Lord and that the Lord will actually benefit him for having this false religion. Well, let's be introduced to some more characters. This will round out our cast of characters. When we come to chapter 18, we actually see a group, the people of Dan. Dan was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they've fallen on hard times. The writer in verse 1 tells us that they were seeking for themselves an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now that's being generous to the people of Dan. In actuality, what happened according to some of the other histories in Joshua and Judges is that the Amorites had driven them out of their land inheritance. That's Judges chapter 1 verse 34. And it appears according to Joshua 19:47 that the Philistines had driven them away from the northern territory of Israel, which had been given to them as a land inheritance. That was close to Philistine territory. And it's interesting to look back to uh, the story of Samson. And as it begins in chapter 13, verse 1, you read that Samson's father, Manoah, was of the tribe of Dan. And who did Samson and his family have trouble with? The Philistines. So the Amorites and the Philistines had driven the Danites, if you want to call them the people of Dan, away from their inheritance that was their right according to the will of God. And they were embarrassed by that. Now, I've noticed this about people in that situation, insecure people in particular. What happens when a person who likes to think of himself as tough gets embarrassed? He often finds somebody smaller than him to pick on and boost his ego. He becomes a bully. 
And to me, the people of Dan really look like bullies as we go throughout this. And I'm just going to point that out in a few places. Um, five of them come up to Micah's house and meet this Levite and ask him to inquire of the Lord about their success. And they depart from that place in verse 7 and come to a place called Laish. And at Laish, they see a group of people described this way. They lived in security after the, matter, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth. They were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So they were isolated, and despite the fact they were isolated, they were quite happy and secure where they were. And they came to their brothers, and they said, let's go up against these people. We've seen the land, it's very good, and will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you'll come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there's no lack of anything that is in the earth. So he describes these people who are keeping to themselves, not hurting anybody, and Dan, the people of Dan think, instead of fighting the Philistines, taking our land back, we're going to beat up on these little unsuspecting people in Laish. More examples. Uh, go down to uh, verse 17. They come to, they come back to the house of Dan, where these five spies are, and this time they bring a battalion of 600 men. And they're standing by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who'd gone out to scout the land at the beginning, they come up and enter uh, Micah's house, and they take his idol and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image. And, and the priest stood by the entrance of the gate, and these 600 men are there with the weapons of war. Now you imagine being in Micah's shoes. These guys are taking your idols, and they have an army back at the gate. And they don't have to say anything. The message is very clear. We're taking your stuff, and if you don't like it, we're going to kill you and take your stuff anyway. And so Micah, you know, he has a few things to say about this. He says, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away, and what have I left? How then will you ask me what's the matter with you? In verse 25, the people say this. Listen to, the, listen to the answer they give. These are bullies. Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Now, that phrase, angry fellows, translated by Robert Alter in his translation, embittered men. Embittered men is a little different than angry men to me. Embittered men means we have been done wrong by other people stronger than us, so we're going to do wrong to you. And they come to Micah's place, and they take his idols, and they take his ephod, and then they start looking at his priest. They want to take that too. And uh, they offer him some money, and he's happy to go with them as well. Then they come to Laish, verse 27. They take all those things. They go to Laish, a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword 
and burned the city with fire, and there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And so they wiped those people out and took their place. This, you know, it's a subjective interpretation, I know, but to me, this doesn't make the people of Dan look very good. Again, the way that this is written is not in a judgmental way. Any kind of judgments that are made, and I might point out more a little later, are very subtle here. But you get the story. In summary, we're introduced to Micah and his mother. They fund a shrine. The shrine is visited by a true Levite. We later learn his name is Jonathan. He's a descendant of Moses, so he qualifies to be a priest according to the law of Moses. However, he agrees to serve in an unauthorized shrine run by this guy Micah. And everything's going swimmingly until the people of Dan show up. They're on a murderous rampage. They decide they want the shrine for themselves as they start their new life in Laish. So before they commit genocide, they pick up this priest, they take the, uh, the idols, they tell Micah that if you don't let us do this, we're going to kill you, and they leave. Might makes right. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I want to point out a few things that's going on here as it relates to false religion. Because that's what this is really about. It's about a man making up a religion, trying to find some happiness through that, and then some others come and they steal that religion for themselves with the same intent. I think, despite all the question marks as you read through the details of this account, that's the, the message here. So that's what I want to dwell on for the rest of the time, false religion. There can be no question but that what we're looking at here is an example of invented religion as opposed to received religion. I have noticed, maybe you have too, that people have a very negative view of religion today. And in every case where religion looks bad, it's my view that they're looking at a false religion, not the received religion through revelation of God. Now, I guess that's not true when it comes to people who are just against godly things, but if you set that aside, when people have a problem, well-meaning people who are looking for God in their lives, when they have a problem with religion, their problem is not really with true religion, it's with invented religion. That's why you hear this nonsense about righteousness versus religion. That's something I hear all the time, or I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. Well, God, He revealed religion in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And that's what the church is. And how many passages of Scripture talk about how God has created the church, instituted the church, established the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said He would build a church, and He built it. So God is not opposed to religion. He's opposed to false religion, hypocritical religion. Yes, there are many, many passages of Scripture where Jesus is rebuking the pharisaical religions of his day, and there are a lot of modern-day parallels to this. And we're looking at another one here. 
This is invented religion. Look at Micah's complaint against the people of Dan in chapter 18, verse 24. He argues, yeah, verse 24, he argues, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? You take my gods, he says, that I made. He knows where these came from. He knows they didn't fall out of the sky. He didn't make them according to the revealed will of God. They were an invention made by him. And his complaint is they were taking what was rightfully is. This was his religion, not the religion of the people of Dan. And it's interesting how the author of the book of Judges continues to refer to Dan's shrine and his religious tools in that language from that point forward. In verse 27, the people of Dan took what Micah had made. Verse 31, they set up Micah's carved image that he had made. It's an invented religion. It's not an authorized religion. Do we have that kind of religion today? I got to thinking about it, and I thought of several examples of how religion can get into the category of invented and how it can walk away from the revealed religion of God as found in the Bible. Let me just run through a few examples. What about this one? And this is the first one I mentioned because I think it's what we're looking at here in the book of Judges. Creating religion to scratch an inch, uh, to scratch an itch. You know, you we, we all have a religious inclination. Man is incurably religious. There's never been a society or a civilization throughout time that has not been worshipful. People have always worshipped something. In the absence of the truth about God, they'll make up something. There's this itch, this religious itch inside of us. We're wired that way. We've been created in the, in the image of God. And so Micah had that, and people have that today, and they take shortcuts, make up a religion instead of examining the Bible to see what kind of religion does God want. It's kind of like starting to feel some symptoms that show that something's wrong with your health and not knowing what it is, and instead of making a doctor's appointment and going to the doctor, you Google your symptoms and try to figure it out yourself. That's insane, by the way and terrifying, but some people do it, and that's what you do when you make up a religion instead of going to the Bible. You shouldn't take shortcuts on this kind of thing. The stakes are way too high. But first of all, I think that's one category that's very common, and the second category I thought of is maybe the most common today, and that's misunderstanding religion, thinking that it should give you an experience that comes from the outside instead of one that comes from within. Worship, and I think of worship and religion very as being very closely related, worship is an internal thing. We dwell a lot on the expressions of worship, but at its essential nature, worship is an internal thing. But oftentimes, we misunderstand religion to be something that should be given to us by others. And that's why religion has become so performance-based today. Why the idea of going to church involves sitting in the dark while someone on the stage is doing all the heavy lifting. 
that has changed a lot in recent times with regard to music, by the way. You have professional musicians and sound, stage, lighting, great AP, uh, AV, AV, AP, great sound systems, whatever the word is, and you have all this stuff, you know, there for the performance, and it looks a lot like a concert. In fact, that's really what it is in many places. Sure, people may be singing along here and there, but you can't hear them. The sound is jacked up so high that they're, they're there, and they do they get an experience? Definitely. Is it a moving experience? No, no doubt. It is a very moving experience. Is the message good? Most of the time, I'm sure that it is. But what's happening is there is a misunderstanding that religion has a responsibility to give the experience to the person, when in reality, the Bible teaches that it goes the other way around, that worship is something that begins within you, coming from your right relationship with God, and it is expressed through you to the outside, not the other way around. There's that misunderstanding that accounts for a lot of false religion out there today. Then there's another big category. Uh, this is the third category by my count. Co-opting religious for other reasons, for uh, agendas other than God's agenda. The biggest example of that is politics. Um, back in the 1980s, you had the moral majority, and politicians started looking at evangelicals as a huge voting block, and they took advantage of them. You may feel otherwise. You may feel that church is the place for politics. I don't share your view. I think politics gets enough 24-hour news, and they get six days a week. I think the church should be given at least one day a week. I think one day of a week is an opportunity for a preacher to stand up in God's pulpit and talk about Jesus and the gospel instead of politics and the preferred political party. There are political issues that we should care about. No question. But the church should never turn into a tool for a political party. And frankly, I feel that the church has been used over the last several decades just to get more votes. I feel very strongly about this because through the years I've had people pull me aside and question me because I don't promote a particular political candidate from the pulpit or tell people how they should vote, promote a particular political party. Frankly, I haven't been happy with either political party and their uh, way of representing Christ. They don't represent Christ. It seems ludicrous to talk about how politics represents Christ in any way. That's not their job. It's the job of the church to do that. And we have been manipulated and used. Now, I don't think it's wrong for a Christian to run for public office. I do think all Christians should should vote. I believe we should keep track of what's going on and be in the know. But the purpose of the church and religion in general is not to serve politics or any other agenda. Uh, it's not there for social benefits. 
It's not there for community projects or philosophical views. And so that's another thing. Here's another way that religion is used and co-opted and, and oftentimes created. A lot of times uh, religion is used to make somebody famous. It's used for fame. On a big level, I'm thinking about celebrity pastors who enjoy being known, being adored, being showered with wealth. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, by the way, a lot of those celebrity pastors don't enjoy the celebrity, and I'm aware of that. And they get themselves into this situation that has been created by this false religious system, and, and they want out because they they see it's not the most authentic way of service. Uh, but, you know, there's that. But then on a lower level, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people who want to be loved and adored for their intellect or their speaking ability or their writing ability, and they're not really interested in the true work of the kingdom. And that's a problem. You don't use, you don't make up religion and invent a system to promote you. The church is all about humbling yourself and being lost in Jesus Christ. So there's that. And then um, finally, I'll just tack this on there. A lot of times religion is used as uh, a means for an academic exercise. Some people just love to study and they like... Uh, they like to fantasize, or they like to uh, they like trivia. They like puzzles and riddles, and scripture provides them with a lot of intellectual stimulation. That's not what religion is for either, and it can be making you happy in all of these ways. It can bring you a lot of joy in all of these ways, and you could still be very very lost, because the only cure is Jesus Christ. You'll notice there's a lot of moments of joy in the text where this false religious system has worked momentarily. Uh, Micah's the first who says in chapter 17 verse 13, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And then the people of Dan, it's their turn in chapter 18 verse 10 to get excited. God has given layish into our hands. And then it's the priest's turn. Chapter 18, verse 20, he's all excited about this offer of more money and a better arrangement, more people to serve. And it says the priest's heart was glad, but all of them were lost. All of them were doing what was right in their own eyes. What do we do? What do we do? It, it is a very confusing situation. And many of you may be in churches right now thinking, am I in a place God approves of? There is a cure that is su suggested in the very subtle language of the book of Judges. And you see it right there in verse 6 of chapter 17, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And again in chapter 18, verse 1, Repeat it again as if to say, pay attention. This is the point of the whole thing. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no king. What is that suggesting? We need a king. 
It would take the people centuries of time to figure out who the king was. It wasn't David. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't the sorry kings of the divided kingdom or Judas Maccabees. It wasn't Caesar. It was a humble carpenter's son from Nazareth named Jesus. And if you want religion to be right, look to Jesus. Because a king, the rightful king, well, he straightens the whole thing out. Next time, we'll finish up the book of Judges right here on Wide Margins.